This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. And now please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 26, looking at verses 1 through 24, the chapter. We continue our series of studies in Jeremiah. Tonight, 26, brings us to something of a new section in this book. Up until now, much of it has had to do with Jeremiah's prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem, God's impending judgment. Uh, We enter into a section that has more to do with Jeremiah himself, more biographical. Especially, Jeremiah, uh, in competition with the court prophets of Israel, the false prophets, uh, who spoke, who contradicted Jeremiah, and uh, the people are faced with a question, who do we listen to, to Jeremiah or these other prophets? And we'll see some encounters that Jeremiah has, some conflict that arises in, uh, in that vein. And, but tonight, we're looking at Jeremiah and something that happened to him. Um, so let's pick up with chapter 26, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and this would have placed these events somewhere around 608, 609 B.C., uh, that would be earlier than much of what we've been talking about. This would be earlier than the, than the Babylonian attack on Jerusalem. So we're going back in time just a little bit here. This word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me who walk in my law that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, And the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. And the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves a sentence of death, because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster he has pronounced against you. But as for me, 
Behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he's spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and treat the favor of the Lord, and did not the Lord relent of the disaster he had pronounced against them? For we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. When Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Achbor, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with a sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Pray that as we study it this evening, Father, that your spirit, who has inspired and preserved this word for us, will once again take it and illuminate to us to understand it. Open our eyes and hearts, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us in the word of God tonight. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you gathered from the reading of the text, Jeremiah has gotten himself into just a bit of hot water with this message of judgment that he keeps bringing to the people. Uh, and in fact, we've already heard this sermon in lengthier form. If you go back to chapter 7 of Jeremiah, you go back to the temple sermon. Uh, and we have more of what Jeremiah said there. What we have here is very briefly a summary. Uh, but what happens is Jeremiah gets himself into trouble and essentially winds up on trial. Uh, this is one of the most full records we have in the Old Testament of, of how they might have conducted a trial. Uh, doubtless, we don't have everything here, but certainly enough to have some kind of idea of how they would proceed. And it divides into five sections. First of all, again, just the summary of Jeremiah's commission and call preached this particular message that we know is the temple sermon. This word came from the Lord to Jeremiah, verse 2, to stand in the court of the Lord's house, Speak to all the cities of Judah that come here to worship. The words the Lord says, I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. Do not omit anything. The verb there is the same verb that's used later in chapter 48 of Jeremiah, to trim the hair. The Lord's saying, don't trim anything out. And he may have been tempted to, because this he knew would be an unpopular, unpopular message. Uh, but the messenger of God can't tailor the message to suit his own uh, likings, and Jeremiah uh, knows that. The Lord says, don't omit anything. Don't trim out anything that might be unsavory or difficult, unpopular, or that might bring harm to you. Don't omit a word. Don't hold back a word. It may be they will listen, the Lord basically explaining to Jeremiah. 
and everyone turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. Now, that's just the covenant that God had made with them. Remember, back in Deuteronomy, you, you serve the Lord, worship him, obey him, walk in his grace, blessing. You turn to other gods, you disobey the Lord's words, you go your own way, the curses of the covenant. It's conditional. And that's what the Lord is saying here. Uh, preach this to them. Maybe they will relent. Maybe then I can relent from the disaster that I have threatened upon them. You shall say to them, verse 4, If you will not listen, do all these things, then I will make you like Shiloh. I will make this city a curse. Uh, and there's not a, there's a somewhat unhopeful note just before 6, the end of verse 5, though you have not listened. You know, there's nothing encouraging to this point, but maybe they will. The Lord says, I'll make you like Shiloh. Now, turn back to chapter 7 just to, to get a little bit more of the flavor of the sermon. We'll talk about Shiloh. Chapter 7, verse 8. Remember the problem. The people trusted their form of religion. They had the temple. They had the law. And just on an external basis, they had confidence in that, but their hearts were not for the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 8, Behold, Jeremiah says, speaking for the Lord, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. You know, they'd say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Talk about a message that will preach today in the church. Are you going to go out and live in your sin all week and then come in and worship the Lord and say, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, only to go out and live the next week in your sin? That's the message Jeremiah is preaching. And see, the confidence is not in that their heart is changed and there's a fruit of the Spirit and there's a changed life. It's just that they have the temple of the Lord and they go to it on Sundays and they think they're okay and they think they're good. And they're right with God. Well, again, verse 14 the Lord says, I will do to this as I did to Shiloh. Well, what was Shiloh? Shiloh, of course, was where Samuel was and Eli and the, the, uh, the presence of the Lord, that worship center uh, that was destroyed by the Philistines. And in fact, in Jeremiah's day, was ruins. And Jeremiah was pointing to Shiloh saying, you see that? That was where Israel gathered to worship the Lord. That's a heap of ruins. That's been destroyed by the Lord. Well, the Lord is going to do that to Jerusalem if you do not repent and if you do not turn back to him. But if you do, then the Lord will relent. Now, what is this but the gospel? Now, Christ was yet to come. But Jeremiah here speaks of certainly the judgment of God for their sins, but also the mercy of God if they will repent and if they will pursue and seek the Lord. Jeremiah's message was really nothing other than the gospel that we preach today, although with the clarity of the new covenant that Jesus has come. And it's Jesus who has atoned for our sins. Well, that's the first section, verses 1 through 6. We come then into the second section, and that is the opposition that arises as a result of Jeremiah's faithfulness not to omit a word to preach the message the Lord gave him. And we see this in verses 7 through 9. Priests and the prophets... The religious establishment in Jerusalem heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord, in that very place that he was saying would be destroyed. 
Verse 8, when Jeremiah had finished speaking all the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, apparently they very patiently let him go on, let him, you know, giving him lots of rope there. Uh, but when he had finished, their fury was released. Then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, this city desolate without inhabitants? You see, their, their irritation arose on two fronts. One, he was preaching something that they saw as impossible. That the Lord would bring destruction to his own temple, to his own city. They saw that as being impossible, and therefore, Jeremiah is a false prophet, because he's prophesying that which could possibly happen. It was inconceivable in their minds that this could happen. Second, he's doing so invoking the name of the Lord. He's claiming the Lord's authority for this in their minds, false message he's preaching. And so they're outraged, angry, fed up. All the people gather around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. You can sense the the menacing uh, approach as the people were getting closer to him, closing in around him. So you have Jeremiah's faithfulness in preaching this message the Lord's given him, and then this uh, hostile reception to the message. Well, then we begin a trial. Uh, in verses 10 and following, when the officials of Judah, this would not be so much the religious leaders, the priests and prophets, as it would be the civic authorities, civic officials of Jerusalem, heard about these things. They came up from the king's house, where the governmental offices would be, up to the temple, which was the highest point uh, above the city of Jerusalem, uh, and took their seat, in other words, convened a formal hearing, a formal trial, in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Uh, we're familiar with that from the Bible. Typically, when cases were heard, it would be in the city gates, which seemed to be sort of a public gathering place uh, where people would meet to try things or even make, make arrangements, business arrangements, that kind of thing, where it could be witnessed publicly and sealed in that way. And uh, first of all, there's the accusation, verse 11, the priests, the prophets, said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. That's their accusation against him. Uh, he's, he's essentially guilty of blasphemy. He's, he's condemning the city of God and, and doing so in the name of God and doing so in the very precincts of the temple of God. Well, then we have his defense. Uh, verse 12, Jeremiah spoke to all the officials, all the people. And it's interesting. He begins and ends with the same thing. The Lord sent me. The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house. And it's emphatic. I mean, he puts the, the Lord first. Uh, he emphasizes that this is not his own message. It is that of the Lord to prophesy against this house and this city, not just the temple, all the words you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds. Brings back that conditional element they left out. Jeremiah is just prophesying destruction. Well, yes, conditionally, if they refuse to repent, but also the mercy of God if they will return, if they will repent and turn back to the Lord. And Jeremiah brings back that conditional element, which puts the responsibility back on them. Mend your ways. Your deeds, obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of that disaster he has pronounced against you. That's the message. 
he repeats it. But Jeremiah also uh, recognizes his predicament. As for me, I'm in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is right. But he says, know this. If you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and upon its inhabitants. Because in truth, not making this up, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Jeremiah basically says three things. One, he speaks with the authority of the Lord. Two, uh, he, is, he is in their hands. He's at their disposal. But also three, if they do choose to put him to death, he's innocent. And they are guilty of innocent blood. That's the trial. That's, and, and then his defense, the accusation, his defense, and the third part of the trial, which is the verdict that the officials give. And uh, as, as dark sometimes as Jeremiah has been, the book of Jeremiah has been, uh, it's a rather bright spot here. Jeremiah is acquitted on all counts. That's a good thing. The verdict uh, is given in verse 16. The officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets who brought the accusation, this man does not deserve the sentence of death. The expression of sentence of death seems to be a technical term referring to a capital crime or death penalty uh, he doesn't deserve the sentence of death. Their, their verdict is he's not guilty. And they give their rationale, the grounds, uh, why he is not guilty. In the first place, verse 16, he's spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Now, they don't comment on his message. They simply acknowledge that as a prophet, this is the kind of thing prophets do. He spoke to us in the name of the Lord. That's what Jeremiah does. We know that. That's what prophets do. They don't render a decision on whether his message is is good or not, or whether his message is more accurate or superior than that of other prophets who are named here. They simply say that as a prophet, he has the right to speak what he believes the Lord has placed on his heart to say. So they protect, uh, if not the validity of his message, at least his freedom of speech. So he's a spokesman for God. Um, Second ground that they have here for their decision is is an interesting one. History. The example of Micah, a precedent here. Micah of Morasheth, yes, the same Micah uh, of the book, Micah, the minor prophet that we have in the Bible. Look at verse 17. Certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be like a plowed field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the house, a wooded height. Message of what? Judgment. Destruction. Now there's something absolutely fascinating about this. This is the only instance in the Old Testament of an attributed quotation of one of the writing prophets especially where one prophet quotes another. And in fact, this is uh, verbatim from Micah, uh, Micah chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, almost as if, and probably did, have a copy of Micah's prophecy there on hand, saying, look, it says here, this is what Micah said back in the days of Hezekiah. And they quote him pretty much verbatim. Now, interesting thing, uh, quotation in, in uh, one of the writing prophets of another writing prophet, and yet it's there, this cross-reference. But the point is that Micah came back in those days and he preached the judgment of God against this city. But what was the response? What was the precedent? Verse 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah, put him to death? No, they didn't silence him. They didn't get rid of him. They listened. 
Did Hezekiah not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster he had pronounced against them? We're about to bring great disaster on ourselves. What did they do? Well, Hezekiah repented. He sought the Lord. Remember the Assyrians, uh, Sennacherib and those, the Assyrians were coming after Jerusalem. And the Lord spared them. He sent his angels out and destroyed some 180,000 of the Assyrians. And they turned away and went away. And the city was spared in the days of Hezekiah. But uh, they didn't put the man to death. They listened. They repented. They turned. And then the horror of this, this guilt of what they're contemplating doing, verse 19, we're about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. And why would we turn around in our day and kill this prophet of the Lord, sentence him to death, when back then they heeded the message and they humbly received it and repented? And so that's the, uh, the rationale for this verdict, that Jeremiah is a spokesman for God the precedent of Micah in his day, and this horror of, of doing something unjust, bringing innocent blood on themselves. Now, the chapter has a couple of other things uh, here. We've seen the message of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's opposition, Jeremiah's trial. That, I think, sort of ends, but there are a couple of other things that are relevant here. One, it's not nearly so bright a spot as what happened with Micah and Hezekiah, and it sort of implicitly contrasts Hezekiah in his day, who was a good king, not perfect, but a good king as far as they went, with Jehoiakim, the current king. You don't miss the contrast here. Uh, verse 20, uh, Jeremiah's risk. We think, well, whew, Jeremiah's, uh, Jeremiah's off the hook, right? Not so fast. Verse 20, there was another man who prophesied. This man, Uriah, son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, he prophesied just like Jeremiah did. Said the same kinds of things Jeremiah was saying. And verse 21, when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and officials, heard his words, he sought to put him to death. And so Uriah flees. He flees, as often people would do from that area, down to Egypt. Unfortunately, there was an agreement, a bond between uh, Israel, Judah, and Egypt at that time. And uh, Jehoiakim was able to go down and find Uriah, bring him back, extradite him back up out of uh, uh, Egypt, and struck him down with the sword, dumped his body into a common burial plot. So just when you think, boy, they've, they've vindicated and exonerated Jeremiah, you see what kind of things go on in, under King Jehoiakim. His regard for the prophets of the Lord, not like Hezekiah, who listened, and this verdict and this trial that uh, acquitted Jeremiah but Jeremiah lived under a king who, if he didn't like the message of the prophet, had no qualms of having man summarily put to death without benefit of a trial. Just have him murdered. Just get rid of him. That's the kind of king Jeremiah was serving under. Now, Jehoiakim doesn't appear in any of this. Maybe he was out of town or whatever. We don't know. He doesn't show up in this trial. But he nevertheless looms large as the king who is reigning and a king who is uh, quite ready to put such a man as Jeremiah to death despite whatever the wheels of justice might have produced here. But there's one other note, and we end on a high note, an encouraging note, and this is uh, verse 24. But, but, despite that, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so he was not given over to the people to be put to death in spite of what was stated in the trial. Jeremiah had friends in high places, this man, Ahikam, was an influential figure in royal circles. His father, Shaphan, had been a secretary scribe to King Josiah in earlier days. 
And in fact, both Ahikam and his father Shaphan had been part of this high-ranking deputation that King Josiah had sent to Huldah after, the, after discovering the scroll in the temple. You know, they find the scroll, the word of the Lord, and that's when all the reforms start under Jeremiah. Uh, so this man was well-connected. His, his brother, Gemariah, was part of Jehoiakim's cabinet. And so this man was looking out for Jer- uh, Jeremiah and making sure that uh, he was protected and that uh, Je- Jehoiakim the king didn't get hold of him and put him to death, despite what Justice had said in Jeremiah's favor. He lived with a dangerous message under a dangerous king. But it is interesting, and to their credit, that when they went through a trial, the people recognized who Jeremiah was, his right to declare this message, and protected him and vindicated him in that. But if you were reading, as we were reading through this and talking through this passage, did it seem at all Familiar. Familiar with some things we've been talking about on Sunday morning with what happened to Jesus. Did you note the parallels? There's some striking parallels between this passage and what happened with Jeremiah and what's been happening with Jesus as we've been studying that in Matthew, later chapters of Matthew on Sunday morning. Remember, Jesus, too, was arrested and was accused because of making statements against the temple. He said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Very same kind of thing Jeremiah was accused of saying. And even in fact, when the officials uh, hear the accusation from the priests and the prophets, notice the change. Back in verse 9, their problem with Jeremiah has to do with what he says about the temple. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, this house and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. But notice what they say to the city officials in verse 11. This man deserves the sentence of death because he's prophesied against this city. They make no mention of the temple because they don't want this to just be a religious matter. They want this to be seen as a threat that the officials would feel concerned about and perhaps offended by. They leave out the temple. It's the city. Remember what happened with Jesus. They bring in witnesses who finally were able to say, this man said he'll destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, which, of course, was not what Jesus said. Jesus said, destroy this temple, my body, is what he's talking about. I'll raise it up in three days. But they garble that. But then before Caiaphas, Jesus acknowledges that he is the Messiah. And Caiaphas tears his robe and says, we've heard blasphemy. This man has blasphemed. He claims to be the Messiah. Of course he can't be the Messiah. But what happens when this goes over to Pilate, the Roman governor, who wouldn't be interested in Jewish religious squabbles. This man claims to be a king. This man's a threat to Rome. This man could lead a revolt. Now, yes, the Messiah was a king, but it meant much more than that. And they knew that. But they also knew that the element of kingship tied up with the Messiah's role is what would get the ear, the interest of the Roman governor. He claims to be a king. Similar tactic 
when they come to the officials. He's threatening our city, not the temple, the city. Similar kind of thing. And then notice, notice what happens uh, when Jeremiah points out to them, if you do this, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves. And notice what they say. We are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. They are horrified at the thought of committing this injustice. And they're horrified at the thought of putting to death an innocent man and being guilty of innocent blood. Remember what happened with Jesus. Pilate says, why? To the crowd. What evil has this man done? Why does this man deserve to die? What evil has he done? And what do the people say? His blood be on us and on our children. Do you see how evil, how heinous those actions were against Jesus? Especially when you compare them even to Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. Wicked and perverse as it was, disobedient to the covenant as they were, at least they said, no, we don't, we don't want to be guilty of innocent blood. But the Jews with Jesus said, his blood be on us. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And they didn't shrink back from that. And the mob took Jesus. And there was no one there to protect him. His own had deserted and fled. And they executed Jesus unjustly. But you see, Jesus, when he was on the cross appealed his case to the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And the Lord, on that appeal, overturned that unjust verdict and raised his son back from the dead on the third day. And because the Lord acquitted Jesus, because the Lord vindicated him as Peter Preached to the crowds. You thought he was worthy of death, but God raised him up from the dead because the Lord acquitted him and raised him up because all charges against him now are gone. You and I are redeemed. You and I in Christ have been acquitted of all charges in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is striking to see these parallels between the servant Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, and the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who himself was the prophet above all prophets. God himself come and speaking to his people. But we recognize that even in the injustice of Jesus' death, even where Jesus was not spared as Jeremiah was, that the Lord's purposes were being worked out, that ultimately it was Jesus himself who was in charge and went through with that unjust death, later to be acquitted for your salvation and for mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for Jeremiah and his faithfulness, even under duress, to speak the word, the message that you gave to him, regardless of what that might cost him. Father, we pray that we would be receptive to your word as we read it, as we hear it taught, as we hear it preached, to recognize, Father, that we do not sit in judgment of it, to accept what we will and reject what we don't like but that it sits in judgment of us. Give us receptive hearts to hear your word. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that where Jeremiah was spared, you were not. Thank you, Lord, for dying, not for yourself or any sin you've committed, 
but for us and for our sins. And Father, we thank you for raising Jesus up, the sin bearer, to prove his innocence, to prove your acceptance of his sacrificial death. Prove, Lord, that just as you raised him up, you will one day raise us up in him. And because he lives, we live now and we will live forever. We thank you for him and we pray in his name. Amen.